welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi, friends. My name is Micah. Nice to meet you. Um, I've thought about making that like my walk-up tune, you know, like a baseball player, and they would play music when they like. The other thing I was thinking about doing was some calisthenics. I mean, are you guys up for some calisthenics? I'm cold. Is anyone else cold? I feel like it's freezing in here. It's jumping jacks. <laughs> All right, um, in all seriousness, my name is actually Micah. That is not a joke. I am the pastor, lead pastor here at Awaken, also not a joke. Um, And I want to let you know about two things that are happening this week that are important to those of you who call Awaken home. If you are brand new uh, and this is your first Sunday, some of this may seem a little cryptic, and, and that's probably okay. And if you have further questions about it, you can talk to myself or you can go to our website and um, awakencommunity.com backslash Sundays backslash suspension, and you can find everything you need to know there. Um, Two things. One is that I have a meeting this Thursday at 4 o'clock in Chicago with some of our denominational leaders um, around this topic of human sexuality, which we have been um, discussing a bit as of late. And so I would just covet your prayers uh, during that. That's a really important meeting. And... um, uh, I think for me, but also for our church and for our denomination, so I would uh, great, I'd be very grateful for your prayers. Um, uh, somebody at Awaken has actually volunteered to make the space available on Thursday, so between 2 and 6 on Thursday, the church will be open. If you're interested and you want to come and uh, pray, there's really no program. There's, I think, a, a, a sheet that will be printed out with some scripture, prompts, and guide, uh, so if you want to participate in that, you can do that. Um, and then the other part of this is on January 28th, so in a couple weeks, two weeks from now, we're going to have a follow-up meeting, a congregational meeting that you all are welcome to join us at, where we'll discuss uh, this meeting uh, that I'm headed to this week. But then also, um, wanting to encourage or give opportunities for people who are interested in further dialoguing or discussing or processing um, or being involved in our denomination at a, a, a more... Um, formal level, and so we'll offer some ways that you can do that. So does that sound good? Okay, great. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be there, and uh, this is Epiphany. If you didn't know, if you weren't familiar with the church calendar, we are now in the season of Epiphany. Advent is over. Uh, Christmas is over. We, I, I knew that for sure. We were driving down 94 past Loring Park where the new Holly Dazzle setup is. Did anybody go to that this year, the Holly Dazzle bit? Used to be a parade. Now it's like this sort of winter wonderland with a skating rink and you can get skates for free and there's all sorts of food and drink. It's lovely. Way better than the parade in my opinion. But they say it was open past Christmas. The lights are on. There's nobody home, friends. I drove by it the other night. There was nobody out there. So Advent is over, Christmas is over, but you can still go to that if you want to. Uh, Epiphany is a season between Advent and Christmas and Lent in the church calendar, and we celebrate a couple of things. We celebrate the idea that God has made God's self known in the world, in and through the Christ. Uh, Manifestation of the divine, they talk about. We talk about this idea, uh, this metaphor of the bride and the groom, Christ and his church, um, um, sort of... Uh, significant movement has been made on that storyline. And this idea that the light of God has entered the world. And so this is all happening in the season of Epiphany. And we are walking through uh, what's called the narrative lectionary. So we began in Genesis and we're taking select passages. We are now in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 2, I'll invite you to stand if you are able. And we will read the first 11 verses of John 2. 
On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, There have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Tangent, don't recommend addressing your mother as woman. I tried that once. Not a good idea. Regardless, if you're Jesus, go for it. But the rest of us, maybe not. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each of them from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Pray with me. God, as we gather, we do so with all sorts of things swirling around our hearts and our minds. And so I pray that you would give us the gift of uh, being able to just be centered and here and present to who you are and what you're doing not only in this room and in our church, but in our own lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we give you freedom. Um, Collectively, we say, we recognize that you're present with us, and we want you to to move and to have the freedom to encourage and invite and challenge us to be the people you've created us to be. And so, to that end, we apply ourselves to this story and these scriptures. ask that you would change us. Pray in Christ's name, and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. John's gospel, by the way, gospel means good news. There are four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John often stands alone. It's, um, do you remember Sesame Street when it had the four things and it was like one of these things is doing their own thing? Do you remember that? That would have been John, all right, in John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a part of a group of uh, books called the Synoptic Gospels. Likely they were written first, argument about which one actually was first, but be that as it may, we do, I think, pretty solidly know that John used other material to write his story, right? Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, well, each, each author tells the story in their own way. Um, But John sort of stands alone in a number of ways. Uh, For example, John arranges the material differently. If there was a historic Jesus and events happened in historic fashion, which I believe they did, uh, the gospel writers sometimes take those events and they arrange them differently based on what they're trying to do or say. Right? John takes one event uh, in particular, which comes right after this passage we just read, where Jesus gets upset and he flips the, temple, uh, the tables over in the temple. Do you remember the story? In other gospels where that shows up, it's much later. 
it's usually during the, the a Holy Week when Jesus enters the city and he comes into the temple and it's on his way to the Passion event and the crucifixion and trial and all of that. John takes that event and he plucks it out of time and he puts it right next to this story. Why? Because John's trying to say something. John's trying to do something with how he's writing. Another example is John, in, in the way that John stands alone, John uses metaphors that some of the other authors don't ever use. Um, John talks about water a lot. We have the baptism of Jesus, which we just read last week. We have the water being turned into wine in this story. We have people being healed at pools of water in different cities and places. And so water is very important for John. Light and darkness are very important to John. Like if you read a certain author, you sort of start to get a sense of their flow and their, their, the way they talk. I once had a prof, we were, doing, we were studying Karl Barth. He's wicked, like hard to read. And he's like, reading Barth is like walking into a cathedral. Like it's dark and you can't see anything. And then your eyes begin to adjust and you start to hear how he speaks and the way he organizes material. And if you pay attention to the gospel writers, you can start to get a sense for like where they're headed or why they would have said one thing over another. Same is true for John, light and dark. He's constantly using these light and darkness metaphors to speak about the divine and to speak about Jesus. He uses the metaphor, uh, or he's consistently making reference to this idea of, this idea of new creation. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Suffice it to say, John is penning an epic story of an event that he believes has changed the world. And so that's what, we're, that's what we're tapping into. That's what we're wrestling with this morning in John 2. So here's what I want to do. I want to do two layers. I want to just look at a couple of unique things that John does, which I think are interesting as a writer. And then I want to spend most of our time talking about what do we know about the divine because of this story and the way John has written it, right? Because that's really why we're doing this. We could read the Bible, and it's interesting maybe, but if it doesn't move to, like, what do we know? What is being said about the divine in this story? We've sort of missed the whole point, right? A grand adventure and missing the point. We don't want to do that, so we want to spend our time there. But first, before we do that, what is John doing? The first thing I would say would be signs, not parables. Cue the music. Yes! Such perfect delivery. I mean, that was just flawless. Well done, tech team. Give them a round of applause. You're, I'm only as good as you guys are, so thank you. Yeah, I saw the sign. Do you guys remember that? That was such a terrible song. This is awful. And the music video is worse. I looked it up this last week, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awful. So weird. Like, bizarre people in the, in the video, and you're like, why are you even in this video? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This was my hyped song when I was in ninth grade. Walkman cassette tape. You remember those? Yeah, they were like 18 pounds, and we strapped them to our pants. On the bus, going to the hockey games, this was my hype song. It's no wonder I was such a terrible hockey player. You know, while other people were listening to, like, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, I was killing it to Ace of Bass. That probably explains a lot. That actually doesn't have anything to do, but, it, you know, I saw the signs, signs, not parables, and I thought, this is the only way I'm ever going to get Ace of Bass in a sermon. And so I went for it. Signs, not parables. What am I saying? Particularly Luke and Mark, they use parables a lot. Jesus taught, 
and he taught in parables. A parable is actually a subversive speech act. A parable is trying to like do something. It's trying to engage you. It's trying to say something in a way that just straightforward truth can't. So Jesus tells these stories, parables. And they're all over the Gospels where Matthew, Mark, and Luke depend on them to tell their story. John, zero parables in the entire Gospel of John. Free, if you're ever at trivia and they wonder, what's the gospel with no parables, you can say, you're welcome, you can buy me a drink later. John has no parables, but he does have signs, seven of them, well, eight of them to be specific. If you pay attention in John, and we just read it, right, in our story, he says at the end of this uh, little narrative, he says, this is what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which, and then he does it again after the second sign, and then by that time he thinks you've got it, and he doesn't do it anymore. And he's like, you're on your own, I've helped you, now you can figure it out. And if you count them, the wedding at Cana is one, he heals the royal official son at Capernaum, that's two in John 4, he heals a paralytic at Bethesda, that's number three, John 5, He feeds the 5,000, which you've probably heard that story. That's John 6. That's the fourth sign. Uh, Jesus walks on water in John 6. That's the fifth. He heals a a man that's born blind in John 9. And then the last parable, or excuse me, the last sign is he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So there are seven signs. And according to all of these moments, what's happening is that something is breaking through. Something is breaking in. Like, we, we, we interrupt these, these, this programming to tell you this message, right? You know, like the emergency broadcasting thing? It's like that. Like, something is happening, and John says, it's in these moments, these signs, these miracles, the wedding, the healing, the walking on water, that the kingdom of God, the hopes and dreams of God, what God hoped and dreamed for and saw before it all happened, is breaking in to this mess that we call our world and our life. And this is an important moment. And John is saying, we get a foretaste of what's to come in these moments, these signs. And Jesus is offering and enabling anyone to participate in them by faith. He's saying, this is, come on, let's play, let's do this. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, But as it relates to signs and the seven signs, the eighth day in Jewish culture is a really important one. The eighth day is really the first day. Right? It's the first day of the new week. Right? If a week takes seven days and God created the world in seven days, metaphorically speaking, I would argue, the eighth day is the first day of a new week. If you pay attention in John, this is why I think John's such a great storyteller. Right? He's got these seven signs, and it's like, signs, 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 there's seven of them, seven of them. Oh, but wait, there's actually eight. And the eighth sign comes all the way at the end, and it's the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. The eighth day, the first day of something new, the first day of new creation. The scriptures talk about Jesus as the firstborn of new creation. This first act in this new movement of God's redemptive history, the first day of new creation. And of course, of course, of course, John, it would take place, but where? In a garden. John chapter 20. Mary comes to the tomb and she mistakes Jesus for the delivery man. No, the gardener. Come on. I mean, he's good, right? That's good. That's good writing. There's eight signs, and the last one is Jesus. And it's as if John is saying, listen, gang, friends, listen up. New creation is possible here and now, and it's breaking forth 
in this world, amidst this broken world, and in these moments where we see the light flickering through and bouncing around, what's available to you is the power and the hope and the love and the resurrection power of this guy who was raised on the eighth day, the first day of new creation. Come on, John. It's good stuff. Signs, not parables. He's good. He's really good. He talks about weddings and waitstaff. This is a fascinating one. In a Jewish wedding, there would be all kinds of things that were totally normal. Like when we go to a wedding, we expect a pastor to get up there or a priest or somebody to say something that's usually really boring. Can I get an amen on that one? (laughs) Wedding sermons are awful. They're usually so bad. I'll give you a hint. I'll, I'll let you in on a secret. They're usually recycled. Like, if you have to do this every seven days and come up with new material every seven days, like, that is a big deal, and it's a hard job. So when you do a wedding, the last thing you want to do is, like, write another new sermon. So if your pastor writes a new sermon for your wedding, you know you're special. But we expect a pastor to get up there and say something. We expect, like, a wing, you know, like, ladies on this side, guys on this side, you know, boutonnieres and... Cumberbuns. What were we thinking? Cumberbuns. Seriously. All these things that we expect as normal, right? In a Jewish culture, there would have been things that were completely normal to a wedding that we completely miss. One of them being, these are not like five-hour events, you know, where we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you've asked us to drive from the church to the reception, which is like 30 minutes all the way across town on a Friday night. You have no... We don't... These things would have lasted days on end, seven days sometimes, friends, of a wedding celebration. And these were epic parties, like dancing and eating. And if there was dancing, likely there was drinking, because you've all been to that wedding, right, where there's supposed to be a dance party, but there's no help. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, and everyone is just like laser clear and have their wits about them. And they're like, I'm not going out there, no way. But with a little help, people are like, let's do this. They would have been epic food and wine and dancing and celebration for days on end. This is totally normal. Also, what would have been normal is the assumption that if you run out of food or wine, it is a bad day. Like if you host a party and 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 like our, our wedding invite list is like family and close friends, you know, and then you go through that awkward moment where you have to like cut people off the wedding list. These people would have been like, pick them up. Look, Harry, more hitchhikers. Pick them up. Anybody could come. Like if you were in the town nearby or you were literally like traveling through the town, they would have been like, hey, there's a wedding. Come on over. And you, you could go. Like absolutely. So we don't know if Jesus was invited to this wedding or he and his disciples were just passing through and they're like, dude, wedding. We're in. Let's go. Free food. Free potato salad. We're on that. We don't know. Anybody could have come. Like hundreds of people. They typically happened outside. Typically, men and women were separated, like the snowball dance at junior high school. It's like that, right? And the women would have often helped with, like, serving and all that kind of thing, um, serving the food and the wine, but there would have been a head waiter. There would have been somebody hired by the family to help make sure, to ensure that there was enough food and enough wine. Because if you ran out of wine, not only was it a cultural faux pas, like shame, you would be laughed at. You would be remembered as, oh yeah, you remember the Johnson's wedding where they ran out of wine? What a lame party. There, were, there could be like actual legal consequence if you ran out of wine. 
Like, no kidding. I mean, this is a really, really big deal. So you would hire somebody to make sure that you didn't run out of wine. That was called the head waiter. Which makes Jesus and Mary's interaction all the more interesting, right? There's a head waiter whose job it is to know how much wine is left. And this person's oblivious. But Mary... One more situation where the lady in the room has got the pulse on the situation and the men do not. <laughs> Mary is in on it. She knows. Why does she know before the head waiter that there's no wine? Why does she go to Jesus and not the head waiter whose job it was to provide the wine and make sure that the wine was flowing? Why does Jesus say, woman, don't bother me. Don't concern me. That's such a fascinating one. Like, what is happening in this scenario? As it relates to this head waiter guy, one scholar argues that you could read this story as like a dramatization. Not a parable, necessarily, but like a dramatic enacting of a deeper truth or reality. So here's what she says. The kingdom of God is like a wedding at which the head waiter, chosen by the people for the groom, sent by the people, is unaware that the people have run out of their supply of wine. Like the person who's supposed to know doesn't know. Meanwhile, the head waiter, chosen by God, notifies the groom, who has been sent by God of this crisis. The real bridegroom quietly informs the servants of exactly where to obtain all the wine they will need. And when they do, and they find that this bridegroom sent by God actually supplies them with more than enough wine. Jesus is often connected to Israel in the Old Testament and this symbol of Israel. So what's being said by John about Israel and they're, they're supposed to know who they are and what they're doing and what they bring to the world and yet there seems to be some confusion about what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to be bringing and yet this, some, this other guy shows up on the scene and says, Israel whose vocation and life and purpose I take upon myself and I walk it to its fullest conclusion, which is sacrificial love for the entire world. It's as if like the bridegroom and the head waiter didn't know that there wasn't enough wine, but there was somebody who did and said, the wine is this way, my friends. John, he's good. Signs, not parables, weddings and waitstaff. And then the last one, third day. And I don't mean Max Powell, everybody. Come on. <laughs> That was a good one. That just came to me right there. <laughs> the third day. John opens chapter 2 with, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. If you're paying attention, all through chapter 1, John says, The next day. The next day. The next day. The next day. Verse 29, he says it. Verse 35. Verse 43. So he's keeping track of time. It's important to him. And then, out of nowhere, it opens with, On the third day. Well, of course, as people who read the Bible from this side backwards, we have a sense of what's happening. But to the first readers, it would have been like, third day? Third day of what? Like, the third day after Sabbath? The third day of the wedding? The third day? There would have been intrigue and wonder. Like, why the third day? And then he mentions it again. Only three times in the whole gospel does he mention the third day. And it builds on it, right? Third day, the wedding at Cana. Two, chapter 2, verse 19. You, you can destroy this temple, but I will rebuild it in three days. And then it doesn't show up again until the resurrection, where it says, on the first day, which is actually connected to a time marked of prior to Sabbath, so it's three days from Sabbath, which would have been that day, the tomb is empty, my friends. 
What is John saying? Flashing, blinking lights about third day. The third day, it's when new things are born. It's when miracles are taking place. It's when the kingdom of God is breaking through. It's when the wedding at Cana happened on the third day. So what is John doing? We've got signs and parables. Not not parables, just signs. This cultural piece of weddings and waiters and, and the third day, the culmination of the story and the resurrection of the Christ on the third day. We could go on and on and on. I could bore you for hours on end on cool things John is doing. I won't. I want to end with this, the second layer. What do we know about God? When we read this story, like what are the things that we can infer or learn about the divine as John is telling this story? First and foremost, I would say that God's word is good. And I don't mean the Bible is good. What I mean is that God's word, what God promises, what God offers is good. You can take it to the bank, we would say that, It's like worth its weight. When God says something, what John is saying in this story is that God's word is good. Jesus is essentially saying, uh, okay, long ago the prophets and the writings and the Psalms, they talked about Israel and God in this bride and groom fashion, right? So all through the scriptures, there's this metaphor of God and a bride and those two things being married and betrothed and the question is, will they be faithful? Can you take the person's word that they will be faithful, that they are betrothed, that they are yours? That... And the scriptures play with this. The whole book of Hosea is about this message. Will Israel be faithful to Yahweh? And Hosea is sent and asked to be faithful to his wife who has been unfaithful to him even though in the face of unfaithfulness, Hosea is said to be faithful as Yahweh is said to be faithful to Israel, his bride. And I think this is one of the things, when we go to a marriage and we go to a wedding, it's this spectacular event in our culture, and for 2,000 years later, we still recognize that something is happening in this moment when two people stand before each other and pledge themselves and their lives to one another because it resonates deep, deep down inside of us. Why? I would argue that this is one of those, the, the major metaphors that the scriptures uses in the relationship between human and divine. This idea of a wedding and people committing themselves one to another. So what is John saying when he opens his gospel, this good news about Jesus? I would suggest that he's saying that whatever has happened, however far you may have wandered, however alone you feel in the world, that this Christ is faithful. This wedding is going to happen. Even if they run out of wine, there will be a may a way made because God is faithful. God's good on God's word. And not just barely, right? Like not just scarcity, like just ekes by, but like there is enough wine to keep the party going for many days. Question for you this morning. Do you believe God is faithful? I don't know what you walked in this room with. And I don't know who your mother was or who your father was. Two people who help us understand and and manifest or give us pictures of what the, the heart of God looks like and feels like and is supposed to be like. I don't know what those relationships look like for you, but I'm guessing if you're anything like me that it's complicated. And so the question of whether or not God is faithful matters. Do you believe that when God says, I will be faithful to you, I will come back, this 
will all be put back together in and through the Christ. Do you believe that God is faithful to God's word? Do you believe that God is for you and trustworthy? Now we're hitting it. And I would encourage you to spend some time thinking about that. When you imagine God, when you picture God, when you think about what God is like, is God trustworthy? Or is God the one who's going to pull the rug out? Is God the one who's going to whack you upside the head when you don't see it coming? What is God like? I think John is saying God is faithful. This wedding will happen. If it's on my watch, there will be enough wine for everybody. John is also saying that in Christ, the kingdom of God is breaking in. In these moments, when the signs happen and these miracles happen, John is saying, hey, pay attention. As bad as this world is, as bad as it looks, as, as horrible as it might seem that the Romans are oppressing you and that you as the people of God are actually on the bottom of the totem pole, however bad it looks, these moments when Jesus shows up and this miracle happens and this person gets healed, it's, it's like a crack in the universe that is otherwise dark and light comes streaming in. And he's saying, hey, if you're interested in this, it's this guy. If you're looking for the hopes and the dreams and the love and the mercy and the wonder of God, it happens when Jesus the Christ is manifest. And so I would say to you, people who follow Jesus, what happens when you show up to your workplace? Is it light? Is it hope? Is it grace? Is it justice? Is it wonder? Is it delight that cracks through the walls of Wells Fargo and Coldwell Banker and the dentist's office and the yoga studio? Or is it just more of the same? Is it just a bit more darkness with a different, with a religious tilt, which is even worse? Gang, Paul says you are ambassadors of reconciliation. You have been invited by the Christ, empowered by the Spirit, to show up in the world in a certain kind of way. And when you do, crack, light comes in, hope shows up, love shows up, mercy shows up, justice shows up. Why? Because you're there. So who you are and what you do and the work of your hands and the, 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 the intention of your life, it matters. What John's saying by, in this story is that when Christ is manifest, the kingdom of God breaks through whatever darkness, whatever hopelessness, whatever loss you might experience. He also says, because I'm doing a new thing. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, Isaiah chapter 43. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Jesus takes a Jewish, a traditional Jewish form. These big pots that he's talking about in the story, these would have been commonplace. If you can't get your, yourself to the temple or to the mikvah to wash and be ceremonially clean, a home would have these in their house so that you could be a good, ceremonially clean, religious Jew. It's fascinating to me that Jesus takes that which is good, that which has served a purpose, that which has enabled the people of God to enter into worship, and he dumps it out and fills it up with something new. What am I saying? Jesus takes the form that would have enabled the people of God to experience God and totally changes the game. Is there any way in which you've experienced in your religious life, in your spiritual life, where the form 
that you experienced God in became the, in, the inhibitant, the thing that actually kept you from experiencing the new thing that God wanted to do in you and through you and among you. That's an ironic message to preach in an old Catholic church built in 1938. Because sometimes the forms become the end in and of themselves, and when they do, they're called idols. When we care more about protecting the form or the way in which we've always done it and stop paying attention to the new thing God is doing right in front of us and among us, Jesus starts throwing tables. Prelude to next week. (laughs) Is there any way in which God might be interested in doing a new thing in your heart? a new thing in this community, a new thing among us. Because this is not the only instance where Jesus seems to go outside of bounds. He's coloring outside of the lines. For those of you who are ones or nines in the Enneagram who are like freaking out right now, I don't know what to tell you. Jesus constantly goes outside of the boundaries. He's always found with the wrong people doing the wrong things. I'm, it's there. Is there any way in which you've cherished the form that has held something good for a very long time? And I don't want to diminish that, but I also want to challenge you to be open to the thing, the the juice, the energy, the thing that made that form special. That's what we're after. And when it's not in the form anymore, we have to be willing to say thank you and goodbye. Lastly, I'll say this. I am so grateful that when we read this story, what I find to be true about the person and the character and the nature of God is that God is, in fact, compassionate and kind. Which are not typical words people use to describe God. Kind, compassionate, generous, open-hearted, sensitive. Like, just at a story level, if you're in the scenario, and you're the family who's run out of wine at the most important day, the wedding day, you are begging for anybody to fix it, to jump in, to help. And Jesus says, ah, it's not my time. Woman, why are you bothering me? He says that, and yet, Jesus says, oh, I know we've got a plan. I get it that this is going to throw it all off. We can work on it. We'll get to the cross eventually, but i got to go in on this one. What we know about God is what we see in Jesus. And God, if it looks anything like Jesus, is compassionate and is kind and enters into our messes in the places where we would have been shamed And we would have been the laughable person in the room. And we would have been embarrassed until we were dead. And Jesus says, oh, friends, fear not. There's so much wine, you don't even know what to do with yourselves. Which is less about should you drink or not drink. And more about abundance, gift, benevolence, joy, wonder, delight, laughter, a party, I mean, some of the things people say about God, I'm like, what Bible are you reading? Because this guy is, he's it, man. 
I would have said something else, but it was church. It is church. <laughs> so I offer to you for your consideration maybe a different picture or maybe a slightly tweaked picture of who God is. God is good on God's word. When God says something, we can count on it. God is compassionate and kind, and when God shows up through the Christ in you, the, the kingdom of God breaks through whatever darkness and whatever hopelessness we might experience. So what if God is actually as good as Jesus? That's the question I want to leave you with today. What if God is actually as good as Jesus? Game changer. That's a party I really wish I could have been at. But I think there's another one coming. So I hope to be at that one. I hope to see you there. Pray with me. Good and gracious God, the giver of all good things, we take a moment this morning to pause, to be still, to be quiet. And to ask you the vulnerable questions of our heart, which we may, in fact, even be a little bit afraid to ask. And so I pray for my friends in the next few minutes of silence that a spirit of courage and a spirit of hope would just fill this room and that we would be free and able to ask any question that we need to ask you. That we would be open to wherever you would invite us to go and move in the next few moments of silence. So Holy Spirit, speak. As we take a moment to respond together in song and in closing, I'd invite you to first pray this prayer with me that Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do not let us fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. People have been singing that for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And your life matters. And it's pretty small in comparison to the grand thing that God has been doing and will do long after we're gone. So, do your part. Say yes to it. Participate. Jump in the river. This blessing has been given for thousands of years. Started with a guy named Moses. So, receive this as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace. Go Vikings. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.